0: This week, lareglatide and cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes and high cardiac risk, and new screening guidelines for syphilis. Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma, and today I am delighted to be joined Back again after many months, uh, Rebecca Stovall, a, who is a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. Hey, Rebecca, how are you?
1: Great. How are you, Mo?
0: Very good. It's been a long time since when we last spoke, you were basically about to deliver your child. <laughs> That's right. And now you have since delivered a lovely, healthy young girl.
1: Yeah, and she's now eight and a half months. Okay, so. and yeah. so
0: now you're just about to come back to the
1: That's right.
0: uh, world of... Uh, podcasting. (laughs) So um, I'm excited to talk to you today. As always, we're going to be doing two articles and then we will do a good stuff segment at the end. Um, So let's dive right in. We're going to talk about a major new study in diabetes, which is the LEADER trial. So tell me about this study that you wanted to talk
1: about. So the LEADER trial um, uh, is a trial that uh, looked at patients with diabetes and high cardiac risk uh, to try and demonstrate that uh improves cardiovascular outcomes.
0: And did it improve cardiac outcomes? Sure did. Okay. So um, tell me a little bit about what we knew about liraglutide before this
1: study. Sure. So liraglutide is a GLP-1 analog, um, so it acts like GLP-1 in the body. So GLP-1 is a hormone secreted by um, small intestinal cells, the L-cells, and it works in multiple areas in the body basically uh, to help regulate glucose-dependent insulin secretion, but it also does things like slow gastric emptying, uh, decreases inappropriate glucagon secretion, impacts some of the appetite centers in the brain, and so can actually uh, impact weight loss as well. Uh, and in mice, it actually is involved in beta cell regeneration, which is kind of neat. Uh, so GLP-1 analogs are now used in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Um, so liraglutide is one of these GLP-1 analogs um, and has been shown in previous studies uh, to uh, be better than placebo, um, better than metformin alone, uh, and better in combination with metformin than citagliptin in combination with metformin in terms of um, an anti-hyperglycemic effect. Uh, but we don't know, we didn't know um, whether or not liraglutide impacted cardiovascular outcomes.
0: Right. So until now, we basically knew that liraglutide lowered blood sugar. Yeah was safe. Yep. And uh, there's been some evidence around weight loss in obese patients, right? Yeah. Okay. So this, what was the uh, primary purpose of this study?
1: So this study was specifically designed to look at cardiovascular outcomes uh, in patients with high cardiovascular risk and type 2 diabetes who were on liraglutide.
0: Okay. And we know that there's a long and complicated history between the assessment of cardiovascular benefit from glucose-lowering agents in patients who have diabetes. The most uh, recent example and successful example was the MPA-REG outcome study, which we talked about before on the podcast. Um, but before that, really not a lot of evidence for improved cardiovascular outcomes in patients with diabetes, right? That's right. So this is kind of a swinging for the fences kind of study. Absolutely. Okay, so tell me what uh, patients were included in this study.
1: Sure. So um, the study uh, randomized over 9,000 patients. They were included if they were either 50 years old or older uh, with at least one cardiovascular condition, such as coronary heart disease, cerebrovascular disease, peripheral vascular disease, uh, stage three or higher chronic kidney disease or CHF, Um, or they were included if they were 60 or above with one cardiovascular risk factor. Um, And this was determined by the investigator, um, but included things like microalbuminuria, hypertension with LVH, systolic or diastolic dysfunction, or an ankle brachial index of less than 0.9.
0: Okay, so bottom line, they had to have elevated cardiac risk on the basis of age and established cardiac conditions or uh, older age and established cardiac risk factors. That's right. And so who was excluded from the study?
1: So uh, people were excluded uh, if they had type 1 diabetes um, or if they were um, on uh, a GLP-1 agonist already um, or a DPP-4 inhibitor, if they were on rapid-acting insulin. Um, or if they had a personal or family history of multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2 or medullary thyroid cancer because GLP-1 agonists may increase the risk of medullary thyroid cancer, the one really important exclusion criteria that I haven't yet mentioned is that they could not have had an uh, an acute coronary syndrome or an acute stroke in the 14 days before randomization.
0: Okay. And so um, tell me a little bit about the study design and the intervention.
1: Sure. It was a very large uh, study uh, done in 32 different countries uh, in over uh, 400 sites, uh, and they started with um, a two-week placebo run-in. Uh, basically, they wanted to establish that patients would actually be adherent to uh, the medication regiment, regimen, and uh, at that point, they randomized um, participants in a one-to-one fashion uh, to either liraglutide plus standard of care or placebo plus standard of care they followed these patients for anywhere between three and a half to five years and the primary outcome uh, was a composite outcome and it was first occurrence of death from cardiovascular causes non fatal MI or non-fatal stroke
0: okay so their primary outcome was this composite cardiac outcome uh, you mentioned that this was a, a double-blind randomized control trial and um, It probably bears mentioning that uh, the design of the study isn't... It wasn't a typical study looking for superiority. Uh, How was the study designed specifically?
1: Yeah, so it was a non-inferiority trial. They wanted to demonstrate that liraglutide would be non-inferior to placebo, uh, and they used a time-to-event analysis.
0: Right, and so I always find this a little uh, puzzling because many of these studies... Are designed as non-inferiority which really is not what they're actually looking for right, right? like that's a bit of a, a slate of hand <laughs> where they can power themselves slightly underpowered than the numbers you would need to f- sort of formally claim a superior a benefit but in fact you you say well we're gonna shoot for non-inferiority yeah. and then ultimately they end up saying that Results that they demonstrated was superior. That's right. Even though they were powered really only to detect non inferiority. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) um, so tell me what did they find?
1: So, what they found um, over a median follow up of 3.8 years, there was a significant reduction in the primary outcome in the loriglutide group. So, the primary outcome occurred in 13% of the patients in the loriglutide group, in almost 15%. Uh, of those in the placebo group, uh, which worked out to a hazard ratio of 0.87. And this was a significant uh, result for their non-inferiority analysis, but also a significant uh, result for their superiority analysis. Uh, They also uh, calculated a number needed to treat over three years of use of loraglutide, and uh, that was 66 to prevent one occurrence of the primary outcome.
0: Okay, uh, that sounds very promising and uh, and encouraging, following on the heels of the AMPA-REG outcomes, you know, it gives us some hope about, you know, maybe we're starting to find medications that are really moving the needle on actual patient outcomes in patients with diabetes. So before we get into sort of analyzing why all of this might have been the case, are there any other uh, measures that they looked at in terms of secondary outcomes or uh, any safety concerns from this medication?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, certainly they did um, look at multiple secondary outcomes, um, and uh, it appears that death from cardiovascular causes uh, were lower in the liraglutide group uh, significantly, about 5% versus 6%, um, with a hazard ratio of 0.78. They found a significant interaction between those uh, who had uh, worse um, renal function, as well as those with uh, established cardiovascular disease versus just cardiovascular risk factors. So liraglutide actually had a bigger impact if you had worse renal uh, renal function at baseline or if you actually had heart disease.
0: Interesting. And so tell me, what was the study population like? What did these patients look like?
1: Um, About... Uh, 65% were men uh, with a, medium a median age around uh, 64 for both groups, uh, and uh, both groups had a median duration of diabetes of around 13 years. Their hemoglobin A1Cs uh, were both uh, 8.7 uh, at baseline for the ericotide and the placebo group, and about 80% of participants had established cardiovascular disease.
0: Okay, and so with this, I mean, so that's a pretty sick population whose diabetes isn't particularly well (laughs) controlled. That's right,
1: yeah, pretty badly controlled, you know, with an A1c of 8.7. So
0: how did they do in terms of glycemic control over the duration of the study?
1: Okay, so in the placebo group, uh, the average A1c at the end of... um, 54 months uh, was about eight. Um, and in the liraglutide group, it was about seven and a half.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, and what about other things? So uh, weight loss.
1: Weight loss, sure. So the, uh, the placebo group really did not change weight uh, significantly over the course of the study, uh, though the liraglutide group uh, lost about five kilos on wow. average.
0: I mean, that's pretty impressive, yeah. a five kilogram weight loss. And what was the average starting weight?
1: Average starting weight in both groups was around 92 kilos. Uh, the baseline BMI in both groups uh, was approximately 32 and a half.
0: Okay. And so we, we have a patient population who um, is fairly sick. They have high cardiac risk. Their uh, baseline glycemic control isn't great. They're then treated with either standard of care or standard of care plus liraglutide. Um, and we see cardiovascular benefit in the liraglutide group. We see significantly more weight loss in the liraglutide group, and we see slightly better glycemic control in the liraglutide group. So um, all of that seems pretty positive in favor of the liraglutide. Lar-
1: yeah, it, I, I mean it's it's. A quite a quite an impressive outcome for sure. Um,
0: so one question comes to mind, which is, what is the quality of their standard of care? So did the people <laughs> in the standard of care get good treatment? Were they on other good medications? And
1: standard of care seemed to be used. You know, patients were put on, you know, the st- the typical metformin, sulfonylureas, insulin if they needed it. Um, and in the placebo group, uh, it appeared that. Uh, there was a significantly higher per, uh, proportion of people who were put on these additional medications than in the liraglutide group. Yeah, I think
0: that's perfect. So so we think that their standard of care was was probably pretty decent the st- the uh the control group.
1: Absolutely. Okay. No, no reason to think otherwise.
0: Okay. So um, after the MPREG outcome study, everyone was talking about empagliflozin or the SGLT2 inhibitors and cardiovascular benefit, and everyone kept asking why. So is this just an effect of better glycemic control? Why do, did that medication have cardiovascular benefit when previous studies didn't demonstrate cardiac benefit? And one of the arguments was that it had a diuretic effect and maybe had a number of other cardiovascular effects. So what's the explanation for these GLP-1 agonists and specifically for loraglutide? Why does it cause cardiac benefit?
1: So I I would hesitate to actually lump all of the medications together because other uh, studies have not shown cardiovascular benefit to um, different GLP-1 analogs. Um, And, you know, one wonders a little bit if this population of patients who are Quite high risk for cardiovascular disease um, and have quite high A1Cs to begin with if they, if these patients just had a particularly uh, robust benefit from uh, these medications uh, in terms of um, lowering risk. Uh, it's interesting to note that in subgroup analysis, those uh, participants uh, in the loragulatide group who are at the highest cardiovascular risk and um, had the worst renal function actually uh, showed a greater benefit to loraglutide than the the others. So um, I suppose that is a plausible explanation.
0: Yeah, so one possible explanation for why these studies show benefit when others didn't is that the patient population is different, and certainly this is a higher cardiac risk patient population. I guess the second might be around glycemic control, which is that this wasn't a very well-controlled patient population at baseline. Um, although you would expect that standard of care would also have a similar benefit, so that's maybe less so. And then there's all of the physiology. You mentioned that GLP 1 is a, a very fascinating hormone and has a lot of different effects. We talked a little bit about the weight loss. So, you know, I think what we're seeing emerging out of some of these newer agents in diabetes is that we're not really sure what they do. It seems like the effect is a little bit more than just glycemic control.
1: A little bit pleiotropic.
0: A little bit pleiotropic. And and so there's a lot more work to be done comparing different combinations of agents um, to try and get at a better understanding of how we can really you know, improve outcomes for diabetes patients to possible. Okay. So thanks, uh, Rebecca. That was a great, that's a great topic. It's one that I'm sure many of our listeners will be seeing in uh, journal clubs to come. Uh, uh, so the LEADER trial. So I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it. Let's change gears. So let's talk about syphilis. I wanted to talk about um, basically three papers published together in JAMA, uh, around the United States Preventative Services Task Force updated recommendations around uh, syphilis screening.
1: All right. So, why syphilis? What What's the burden of syphilis that that's causing these, you know, papers to be so important?
0: Why do I have syphilis on the brain? Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully not in any <laughs> literal way. Um, syphilis is a very interesting uh, infectious disease because in a lot of ways, it's this sort of old world disease, a lot of medical uh, history associated with syphilis. Um, but the interesting thing is that syphilis was really on the decline. And in the year 2000, the burden of syphilis was about four cases in 100,000 patients. Uh, uh, and so the, the population prevalence was really declining. And people were starting to th- talk about syphilis as a disease that might be eradicable. But since then, we've seen a a pretty steep rise in rates of syphilis to the point that in uh, some regions of uh, North America, you have almost seen a doubling in the rate of syphilis from that 4 in 100,000 okay. to up to 8 a 100,000 or even more. And there, so it's an important condition, and the public health messaging around it is really important because we've started to see some... Uh, slippage in terms of how we were doing it in managing this disease. And so I think that's why it's really important. That's why the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force did an updated literature review around it and uh, rev- revised or updated some of their recommendations.
1: So what what are their recommendations?
0: Yeah. So, there, so really there are three major recommendations that come out of this. The first is about screening. So um, uh, previous recommendations suggested that adult patients um, at higher risk should be screened for syphilis. And this new set of recommendations updates that somewhat and adds more evidence basically to say that we have evidence that adult patients who are at higher risk of syphilis, and we can get into who those are, should be screened uh, for syphilis. So there's, that's the first headline recommendation, not really a big deviation from before, but more evidence. And I thought it was a useful opportunity for us as clinicians to review who should be screened for syphilis. So that's recommendation one. Their second recommendation is around uh, treatment, and basically they make the observation that treatment of early syphilis is highly effective, When uh, we'll talk about what the treatment is, and basically. Um, it's a reason for why screening is effective and important because we have good treatment. Um, And then their third uh, conclusion is that there is no direct evidence of harm in screening for syphilis. So they basically provide a three-step rationale for screening. The first is that screening is beneficial in high-risk adults. The second is that treatment is effective for early syphilis. And the third is that there is no evidence of harm from syphilis screening As with other uh, screening programs, sometimes there are harms to our screening, right? Right. Which we know, the detection of incidental lesions, unnecessary procedures, etc. And at this point, there hasn't been any evidence documenting harm from syphilis screening.
1: Interesting. So in that case, who should be screened?
0: Yeah, so the motherhood recommendation around this is... uh, When deciding which other persons to screen for syphilis, clinicians should be aware of the prevalence of infection in the communities they serve, (laughs) as well as other sociodemographic factors that could be associated with increased risk of syphilis infection. So what are the risk factors for syphilis infection? Uh, History of incarceration is a big risk factor. History of commercial sex work. Certain uh, racial and ethnic groups so when you look at the United States population in 2014, the prevalence of syphilis was much higher among uh, black individuals, um, and as well as Hispanic and uh, American, what they call American Indian or Alaskan Native individuals, uh, as compared with the uh, typical uh, white or even Asian populations have lower risks of syphilis. So there are some ethnic group uh, pr- uh, differences. Interestingly, men have a much higher rate of syphilis, being a man younger than 29 years. So the, the highest uh, risk group for syphilis is men aged 20 to 29 years. And probably a lot of that is driven by men who have sex with men. Right. Um, and uh, of course, uh, people who have HIV are at higher risk of having syphilis.
1: So um, how often should we be screening?
0: Yeah, good question. This is uh, still not really known. So the optimal frequency for people at increased risk uh, of syphilis for screening is not well established. But what we do know, and this is a new part of this, uh, rec- these recommendations and is based on uh, new evidence from the last time uh, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force reviewed the evidence and provided some recommendations, is that in... Men who have sex with men or persons living with HIV, detection of syphilis improves when screening is performed every three months as opposed to annually. So if uh, clinicians are seeing those patient populations that are at particularly high risk, uh, screening every three months might be prudent.
1: Um, so how, what exactly should we be doing to screen?
0: Yeah, so screening for syphilis is usually a two step process. So uh, the first step is usually a non treponemal test. So uh, the microorganism that causes syphilis is Treponema pallidum. And there are two types of testing for syphilis. This is like the bane of most internal medicine residents' (laughs) existence, uh, which is like trying to keep it all straight. But it's actually fairly straightforward. So there are non treponemal tests. which are indirect tests, basically, versus testing specifically for uh, the treponema, so treponemal tests. The non-treponemal tests are uh, go by acronyms, so RPR or VDRL uh, are the, the acronyms that are most commonly used. Those are the first line. So when you're screening a patient for syphilis, you send RPR or VDRL. So the, the estimated sensitivities of those tests Uh, RPR is supposedly a little bit more sensitive, so 86% sensitive as opposed to about 78% sensitive for the VDRL. So basically the sensitivity of these tests is around 80 to 85% for detecting primary syphilis. Mm. They are very sensitive for detecting secondary syphilis infection, about 100%. Oh, wow. um, And about 98% sensitive for detecting latent syphilis infection. Um, They're less specific uh, than the treponemal tests. Whereas the treponemal tests, which are called TPPAA or FTA-ABS, alphabet soup, but the treponemal test, which is the follow-up test, is more specific. So it makes sense. You start with a sensitive test. If you screen positive, then you go on to a second stage of testing.
1: Excellent. So now we've screened positive and we've confirmed with our treponemal tests. What are we going to do?
0: Right. So treatment um, obviously varies upon what stage of syphilis the patients present with, but treatment of early syphilis is with a single dose of intramuscular penicillin G benzathine, um, which has been shown to be highly effective and obviously has excellent adherence rates because it's a single intramuscular dose. Um, And success rates for patients achieving this regimen are between 90 and 100%.
1: That's fantastic. That really does sort of highlight... How important screening would be because the treatment is so easy,
0: right? And the other thing is that if you miss treating it, um, it can cause fairly profound morbidity. That so, up to fifteen percent of patients with untreated syphilis go on to develop late stage disease, right. which can cause all sorts of untoward complications. You know, in the nervous system, in uh, the cardiac system, basically in any organ system, yeah. as we know. So, um, so a very effective early stage treatment.
1: Now, this is great that we have these new recommendations, and it sounds like they've really um, taken um, you know the patients into account and trying to make life easier for them. Uh, but why is the incidence of syphilis increasing, do you think?
0: Yeah, so um, there's an interesting editorial that accompanies all of this syphilis uh, uh, recommendations in in this episode episode of JAMA and this episode of the round table slash edition of JAMA. We'll just take credit for this edition of JAMA. No. So, um, so there are a few possible explanations for why syphilis might be on the rise again. Uh, one is that funding for public health in general has diminished over time. Uh, and so, uh, for example, the, the example they give in the paper is that the CDC's budget has decreased from $7 billion a year in 2005 to $5.98 billion in 2013. So we're getting, seeing a reduction in in public health programs, so that's one uh, possibility. The second explanation is about sexual attitudes and behaviors among uh, men who have sex with men. So we've seen a lot of advances in the management of HIV in this high-risk patient population with the use of pre-exposure Prophylaxis with antiretroviral therapy increased what's described as sero sorting, so couples sorting into like uh, categories with respect to HIV positivity, and so. the rise of those practices has actually led to a concomitant reduction of condom use, unfortunately, right. in that population. And so there's a concern that as a result, we're seeing more other sexually transmitted infections exactly. on the rise. So that's a very interesting explanation. Mm-hmm. And then the third uh, possible explanation is actually a, a theory of HIV attention and focus kind of crowding out focus on other STIs. So. The, the combination of a few of these different factors has ha, is probably what has explained the rise in syphilis the hope is that with this renewed uh, set of recommendations we can galvanize a little bit more attention around syphilis um, both in terms of public health efforts and for clinicians reminding us about uh, keeping eye out for high-risk patient populations and screening with a non-trepanemal followed by a trepanemal test and then um, uh, treating patients as appropriate with a single dose of penicillin G.
1: That's great. Syphilis will now be high on my radar.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, it's good. That, as the, that was the desired effect of exactly. that segment. Okay, <laughs> awesome. Um, thanks, Rebecca. So that's our our substance from the, <laughs> not to say that the rest of this episode is not going to be substance, but let's get to the fun part. So tell me a good stuff recommendation. Tell me something short and sweet that caught your attention from the world of medicine this week.
1: Absolutely. So um, as we mentioned, I have an eight and a half month old and eight and a half month olds tend not to sleep you know, as much as perhaps I would like them to, uh, and so this good stuff really was was good stuff for me. Um, so I came across a New England Journal Journal Watch um, snippet uh, that talked about a study that was done in Australia uh, where they sleep train babies uh, using. Controlled crying. Um, I think the alternative name for this is ferberization. Uh, and you know, this is certainly a very controversial topic. Um, but it showed that, um, after a year, there were no, uh, stress outcomes and no ill effects to these babies. Uh, So certainly not long-term per se, but certainly longer term than some of the other studies that have come out about behavioral training for uh, infant sleep. And, you know, if you are, you know, up three or four times through the night, maybe this is something that uh, you would be willing to give it a try now.
0: All right. Well, It's not directly relevant to my life at this point, but maybe one day.
1: (laughs) One day. Okay. Yeah. So
0: thanks, Rebecca. So, my good stuff recommendation is good for a laugh, I hope. So, this is a video that I came across um, that's a parody of the increasingly competitive culture around uh, medicine and our selection processes. And so it's a a video about a Japanese hospital that is super intense about selecting medical students who wish to become surgeons. And it plays on a variety of tropes, uh, some of which lie maybe a little bit close to home. <laughs> at, you know, as with any good satire, there's truth at the heart of it around, you know, how competitive things are uh, in, in many cultures, but especially in Japanese culture. Um, and so they, they, it puts these students through some creative tests of dex- manual dexterity such as making micro origami and tiny little sushis to see who would become <laughs> an excellent surgeon.
1: Amazing.
0: Yeah, worth a laugh and, yeah. a, and a chuckle. So – um as well as perhaps an, an inward moment of reflection about the culture of competi- competition we've built.
1: I just have to say I'm glad I'm not a surgeon. <laughs> I,
0: I say that every day. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, thanks so much, uh, Rebecca. It was awesome to talk with you. Welcome okay. back from um, your maternity absence.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And uh,
0: hopefully we'll see you again soon. For sure. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash table. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Roundstable podcast. Thanks for listening.